From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. From Russiagate to corporate power to climate change, author Chris Hedges sees the United States as an empire in steep decline and sees a corporate media fiddling during the demise. Hedges recently spoke in D.C. in support of his new book, America, the Farewell Tour. Trump is not a product of Russian interference. Trump is a product of grotesque social inequality. And, of course, the Democratic Party doesn't want to address that issue because they are an appendage of corporate power. And as the terror of police and state violence continues in black and brown communities, the movement for black lives scores a court victory in D.C. This case is not just about making sure D.C. follows the law, though that is critical, but it's also about building a case for a fairer and more just treatment of all D.C. residents going forward by the police. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And there are many important stories coming from D.C. this week that don't involve Ivanka Trump's careless use of emails or whether the president is still seething over the midterm elections. Writer Max Blumenthal reported in mintpressnews.com this week that an unsealed FBI indictment of four American white supremacists from the Rise Above Movement, or RAM, declared that the defendants had trained with Ukraine's Azov Battalion, a neo-Nazi militia officially incorporated into the country's National Guard. The training took place after the white supremacist gang participated in violent riots in Huntington Beach and Berkeley, California, and Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. The indictment stated that the Azov Battalion is, quote, believed to have participated in training and radicalizing United States-based white supremacy organizations, end quote. Blumenthal adds that the U.S. government has taken a hands-off approach to Azov recruitment in the U.S. as the militia is fighting pro-Russian separatists as a frontline proxy of Washington. The United States has directly armed the Azov Battalion, forking over anti-tank rocket launchers and even sending a team of Army officers to meet in the field with Azov commanders in 2017. He adds that though Congress passed legislation this year forbidding military aid to Azov on the grounds of its white supremacist ideology, the Trump administration's authorization of $200 million in offensive weaponry and aid to the Ukrainian military makes it likely that new stores of weapons will wind up in the hands of the extremist regiment. Now, speaking of indictments, a federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia accidentally revealed recently that WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange has been indicted in the district, and the indictment is sealed. Assange's name was accidentally included in an unrelated case. Revelation about the indictment proves that Assange and his legal team have been correct all along in suggesting that the U.S. is angling to have the journalist extradited to the U.S. from the U.K., where he has sought refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy since 2012. 
While corporate media made a show of rallying behind CNN, White House correspondent Jim Acosta, who was banned and then under court order readmitted to White House press conferences this week, there has been no such support shown for Assange, despite the fact that mass circulation newspapers and TV networks have used revelations published by WikiLeaks. In climate news, as the numbers of dead and missing continue to rise in California fires, President Trump tore the devastation this week and doubled down on being a climate denier, misnamed the devastated town of Paradise as pleasure, and offered the dubious advice that raking the forest would curb such fire devastation in the future. Meanwhile, here in D.C., the grassroots sunrise movement of young climate activists kept up its pressure for a Green New Deal this week by disrupting a speech by Democratic National Committee Chair Tom Perez and protesting nationwide at offices of members of Congress. The nation reports that a dozen members of the House have backed a proposal by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat of New York, for a select committee on a Green New Deal. This committee would be tasked with drafting a 10-year green jobs and infrastructure plan to radically reduce carbon emissions while expanding living wage jobs. And in D.C., the D.C. Climate Coalition is urging district residents to call council members and urge them to pass the Clean Energy D.C. Act before Christmas. The Council's Committee of the Whole is voting on the Clean Energy Act for the first time on Tuesday, November 27th. The coalition warns that Chicago-based utility Exelon, which owns the district's electrical provider Pepco, has snuck in an amendment that would undercut the efficiency measures in the Clean Energy D.C. Act and boost its coffers at the expense of D.C. ratepayers. The coalition says please send a message to your council member today asking them to repeal Pepco's lousy amendments and pass a Clean Energy D.C. Act that is strong and fair. And those are some of our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Chantel James with more news about a victory for the Movement for Black Lives in D.C. as the names of Chinedu Akobi, killed by the San Mateo County Police in California, and Jamel Roberson, killed by a Midlothian, Illinois police officer, are added to the list of controversial fatal shootings of black people by police. Also coming up is a report by Pete Tucker on increased hate crimes in Maryland. So stay with us. On November 16th, courts ruled in favor of the American Civil Liberties Union, D.C., the Stop Police Terror Project, and Black Lives Matter DMV, requiring the city to collect NERAC stop and frisk data. It was a positive step towards seeing legislation that was introduced more than two years ago to curb police violence go into practical effect. In our interview, Black Lives Matter organizer April Goggins and ACLU lawyer Scott Michaelman contextualize this victory, providing background on the NEAR Act 
and efforts to hold the government accountable to it. The NARE Act came actually after groups from the movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, um, Stop Police Terra, and some other groups. We disrupted the mayor's rollout or her press conference in 2016, I believe, or 2015, where she was introducing more like law and order policing, you know, more warrantless searches and more penalties and locking more people up. So we shut it down. But in addition to shutting it down, we testified shortly after and pressed the council to look for something different, that law and order policing, more police doesn't work. Eugene Perrier basically laid out a program that was going on in Richmond, California, which introduced violence interruption as the main tool for reducing violence. And so from that, like, we just worked really, really hard, got the NARE Act passed. It was unanimously uh, passed by the council, but Mayor Bowser decided not to fund it and was still fighting against it. And then we got it fully funded, and now we are working on getting it implemented. The NARE Act looks at interrupting violence and treating it as a public health issue and recognizes that you need a holistic approach to to violence that is both preventative. It also deals with the root causes of violence. So it includes some community wraparound services and pretty much interrupting violence at every point. So people in the hospital after people have been shot that work through that process with them. There are violence interrupters in the community that work on like squashing beef before it starts, especially for retaliation, people who go to the prisons. And there's supposed to be an Office of Violence Prevention, which has not been created yet, even almost three years after the passing of the bill, as well as violence prevention street teams. So we're in the process now of saying we told the council three years ago that if they didn't implement the NARE Act as passed, immediately we would be back in the same situation we were then, which is a spike in homicides and violent crime. And so we're mm-hmm. at that point today. And, and I should add that the, one of the important provisions of the NARE Act pertains to data collection about police stopping and frisking people in the District of Columbia. Because the collection of the data, which is very important to understanding whether the police are treating all members of the community equally and fairly and with dignity, that comprehensive data set has never existed. And the council said, we want you, MPD, to start creating it way back in 2016. And ever since then, the council has delayed, they've obfuscated, they've misled the public, they've asked for money, gotten it allocated, and never spent it. They've signed new contracts with their IT provider without providing any requirements to implement the data collection required by the NEAR Act. They ultimately admitted two years after the fact that they really hadn't done anything and that they were, in Chief Newsham's words, guilty of having not prioritized or taken the effort to understand what was necessary to implement the act. So in May of this year, three groups dedicated to protecting people's rights, including Black Lives Matter DC, Stop Police Terror DC, and the ACLU of DC, sued the district government, Mayor Bowser, and Chief Newsham for their failure to implement the stop and frisk data collection 
provisions of the NEAR Act. And now the court has held four hearings on the matter on our motion for a preliminary injunction, an order compelling the district to come into immediate compliance with the NEAR Act. And the judge indicated at the last hearing just last week that he would be issuing an order requiring the district to come into compliance because after two and a half years and giving the district multiple chances to come up with a plan for compliance, they have still failed. And it's clear that they they don't like this law. They're afraid of what the data will show. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to do it unless they're ordered to do so by a court. So the court indicated that that a ruling would be forthcoming uh, requiring compliance. So, April, does this feel like a victory, like the ruling that happened? Absolutely. I, I think a few things. I think that the judge, you know, took very careful consideration of this. He didn't, you know, for us it's a slam, you know, it's, it's, it's an open and shut. It's very clear what they're doing wrong. I think the judge deliberated really carefully for, like, four hearings. <laughs> um, and I think the fact that having an injunction of, of, against NPD. For folks who don't know, there is very little, if any, like legal, there has been few, if any, legal ramifications for NPD's failure to do a myriad of things or to be held accountable. So this is a huge win. I think in addition to just the injunction, I think that the case laid out by, especially by the ACLU in the court, um, also educates folks on just, like, the process that MPD, like, the, the links that MPD will go through to have to not be in compliance with something um, that shines a light on how used they are to doing this. We were a little, not a little worried, but we were a little missed at the last hearing, not this, well, two hearings ago, when the government's lawyers were telling the judge that they didn't even think that he had the jurisdiction to be able to tell them what to do. So to get the injunction or to know that he will rule in favor of the injunction is huge. That's right. For too long, the district and MPD in particular has felt like it can ignore laws passed by the council and particularly the provisions of the NEAR Act without apparent judicial oversight. And we're hoping that that this case will bring that to an end. So what would the next steps be? Well, I, I can say that on the data collection piece, the terms of the judge's order, and, and he, hasn't, he hasn't laid out the specific remedy yet, are going to be very important in terms of how accessible and aggregable the data will be. Because what the plaintiff groups want to do is take a hard look at that data to see whether, in fact, D.C. police are, as we suspect, coming down harder on some members of the community than others, over-policing in particular African-American members of the community, young African-American males, whether there are jump-outs occurring, even though D.C. policy officials have denied that for years, but we know and we hear from community members what's happening on the streets. Having data to back that up is going to be very important in pressing for substantive reform in the future. So this case is not just about making sure D.C. follows the law, although that is critical, but it's also about building a case for a fairer and more just treatment of all D.C. residents going forward by the police. 
Right. And um, for Black Lives Matter, um, I can't exactly speak for Stephanie's terror, but we're very, very, very close. And I think that we won't ever stop making sure and holding the city accountable for all the provisions of the NARE Act. Like we said, the fact that we have all of these crimes and murders right now that everybody's incensed about, and there is no Office of Violence Prevention, tells you a lot about where the administration impedes um, like loyalty to people and this process actually lies. So for us, 2019 is not going to be any different from past years and holding them accountable, especially for the NARE Act. I do believe that there are more people that the support for holding them accountable has really been swelling. And so I do believe that what folks will start to see is more ways to get involved, to push this, and to really understand the NARE Act as both a tool that the city needs to push, but also about alternatives to policing that actually make people safer and actually address violence in a way that's sustainable and real. It was Black Lives Matter organizer April Goggins and ACLU lawyer Scott Michaelman. From downtown D.C., this is Chantal James. Can't hold me down, there's no gravity in my universe Those rules don't exist to me, you don't believe me, you can search Feeling bittersweet, now it's cavities in your tooth that hurts Cause it doesn't work when you're grabbing me, trying to pull me down The earth backstabbing me as I prove my worth If you biting my style, then who was first? If you biting my dust, then who was first? Geek down, trying to act wild, don't make it worse I speak the truth when I spit, call it a naked verse St. John, when I spit, let me take you to church uh. Amen, amen, trying to intimidate me And you just amen And you dealing with an ill super saiyan With a wide vision and a game plan Call that full brain John Illa J. Yancey, that's my full name Grey bonds on steroids, that's my full swing And I'm out the ghetto superstar Spit stupid boss uh, Yeah In the wake of Trump's presidency, hate incidents are rising, both nationally and locally. In Maryland, reported hate incidents rose sharply in 2016 and 2017, reversing years of decline, the Baltimore Sun reported last month in a front-page story. Among those whom the Sun spoke with was D'Artagnan Johnson. When D'Artagnan Johnson was walking to work one early morning in Middle River, a truck pulled up beside him. They were yelling at me, and they were yelling some racial search towards me, such as where you're going, you should be hung up by one of these trees out here. Um, I continue to walk because my thought was just get to where I needed to go to get to work. Um, and then all of a sudden I hear something crash at my foot, come to find out they threw a bottle at me. In 2017, we've seen an uptick in the number of hate crimes and hate incidents uh, that have occurred on our college campus. Um, mainly they revolved around the drawing of swastikas on different uh, surfaces, whether it be whiteboards, elevator doors, bathroom stalls, etched in um, tables and so forth. Uh, we've seen them all over campus, both in the residential life area and also in academic areas. That last voice was of Paul Dillon, the police chief for University of Maryland, Baltimore County. The rash of racist incidents has continued into 2018. Last week at Goucher College, 
Someone drew a swastika and wrote a racist threat that listed the dorm rooms of African-American students, including Adam Jones, who spoke with the Baltimore Sun. It was Wednesday morning. It was about 5.30 in the morning, and I received a knock on my door. They say it's police. I didn't really believe them, so I answered the door in my boxers, and it is really police. So they say, hey, can you make yourself look decent? Come outside for a second. I put on a shorts and shirt. I walk out in the hallway, and she says, hey, I just wanted to make sure you were safe. And I said, why wouldn't I be? And this is when she starts to detail the incident that happened. She said that apparently someone had come into the bathroom earlier that night and wrote a racist slur on the wall, which said, I'm going to kill on And then they listed three room numbers. And my room number was one of them. It was 104, it was 114, and there was another room number. I forget. It was my RA's room number. But basically, the whole point of her knocking on my door was to make sure that I wasn't done on my floor. Earlier this week, I sat down with civil rights activist Carl Snowden to discuss increasing hate incidents and more. Our focus was on Anne Arundel County, and we spoke at a restaurant in Annapolis, the city where Snowden previously served as a council member. We discussed the recent election, which saw the defeat of John Grasso and Michael Perutka, two Anne Arundel County council members whose politics lend toward white nationalism. Councilmember Perutka's history is nothing short of shocking. He was a leading member of the League of the South, which the Southern Poverty Law Center labels a hate group. Shortly before coming to office in 2014, Peruka left the group, but said he still shared some of their views. He also said the group wasn't racist. That claim would have been hard to maintain after the group's 2017 annual conference, where the invited keynote speaker was none other than leading neo-Nazi David Duke. Just a couple days before Duke addressed the League of the South, Peruka finally denounced the group. Rather than shunning Peruka, six months later in a party-line vote, all four Republicans on the Anne Arundel County Council elected him council chairman. He still holds that position to this day, but not for much longer. December 3rd, the new council will be sworn in, and it will be not only majority Democrat, but the previously all-male board will now have a female majority. To get an understanding of Anne Arundel's politics and its recent rise in hate incidents, Civil rights activist Carl Snowden said it's important to first get a sense of the county's history, which is where our conversation began. Well, Anne Arundel County has been a very conservative county. It's changing because of the demographics that are changing. But prior to the changes, in 1998, we had the last Klan rally that was held at the State House, where uh, the Klansmen held a, a rally. We've had, over the years, uh, George Wallace ran for president of the United States. He was a staunch segregationist, and he won the county twice. Each time he ran for president, he won. As you recall, um, in 1971, uh, excuse me, in 1972, uh, he was shot, George Wallace, while campaigning in Laurel, Maryland. So over the years, there have been ongoing incidents of racism, and there are parts of the county that are very intolerant of people based on their race or their religion or their nationality. So it's not surprising that we've seen an increase of hate or racist incidents. And this comes in the wake of President Trump's election? Absolutely. There's been a clear indication that there's a correlation between the election of President Trump and the increase of hate activities. For example, in the school system here in Anne Arundel, there have been nooses that have been hung. There have been um, threats that's been made. Um, and a lot of them are coming from students within the school system who we believe is being bolstered by what they see in the White House. To read from the Baltimore Sun last week, quoting 
Examples of hate from just the past month include Ku Klux Klan flyers in the Ironstone community. More than 30 Klan propaganda flyers were dropped in front yards in Glen Burnie. On November 1st, a noose made of toilet paper was found hanging in a boy's bathroom at Chesapeake Bay Middle School. The day before, an anonymous message containing a photo of a Confederate flag and the words, you, plural N-word, will rue the day. This message was shared digitally at Chesapeake High School. This again from the Baltimore Sun, talking about just the past month. And of course, we've had uh, an avowed uh, white supremacist whose name was Obrensky, who shot and, oh, excuse me, who stabbed Richard Collins III, who was a uh, buoy graduate to death, simply because he was African-American. His case goes on a trial next month. We also have had the caucus of African-American leaders, which I'm involved in, have now decided that we have to take certain steps to make sure that incidents that have occurred in other parts of the country including churches being invaded and people being murdered, that there are steps taken to protect them. So in December, we're holding a meeting in Annapolis to help progressive organizations and religious organizations on what steps they can take to ensure that they're protected so you don't have people with these extreme views acting upon them by killing people. Carl Snowden, you mentioned... President Trump and his effect, and it seems to be a burgeoning of hate incidents uh, in the wake of his presidency. But also here in Anne Arundel, you had Michael Perutka. There's also John Grasso, um, who just completed, is completing two terms and is now outgoing. He lost his state Senate race. And his Facebook posts are nothing short of shocking. It's shocking and racist and just chilling. I wanted to mention that when Roy Moore, the Alabama Senate candidate, the Republican nominee who was running to fill the seat of Jeff Sessions, who Trump appointed as attorney general, when he was in the midst of that campaign, he came to Anne Arundel, he held a fundraiser, and not only did uh, Michael Peruka attend, by, by the way, Peruka has donated, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, more than $600,000 to Roy Moore between his various campaigns and also his religious and legal uh, institute that, that he has. But also there was Steve Shu, who narrowly lost as a county exec. Uh, Stuart Pittman, the Democrat, won that. And both uh, Steve Shu and Judge Mark Crooks, who Larry Hogan, Governor Hogan, named um, to the Anne Arundel County Circuit Court. He took a smiling picture, as did Steve, Steve Shu, with Roy Moore in the midst of this campaign. Uh, a tacit endorsement. These are not insignificant members of the Republican community in Anne Arundel. And I'm wondering how that plays into all this. Well, they played, they paid a dear political price for it. Uh, as you mentioned, the county executive, Steve Shu lost. And in part, I think he lost because people resented the fact that he had, in fact, embraced Roy Moore. Uh, not only did he lose, but of course, John Grasso lost, and he lost two to one. So I think voters made it very clear that that kind of extreme politics is not what they wanted. They didn't want their county councilman, who happened to be chairman, to be affiliated with these white supremacist organizations, and they voted him out. They voted out John Grasso, who was trying to get to the state senate. So I think they got a backlash to it. And I think part of the backlash was the Democratic Party and progressives energized and came out and voted in great numbers. 
for example, as a result of the election, one of the things that did happen was two African Americans got elected to the Maryland General Assembly. That's the first time this has ever happened in the history of the county. And part of it has, again, to do with the changing demographics in the county. Um, We have more people moving from Washington, D.C., Prince George's County, and Baltimore City into Anne Arundel County. And it's changing the political complexion of the county as well as the direction of the county. Any final thoughts you care to share? Yeah, I think um, it's important for people to realize that fascism always begins, always begins by indicating that there is a threat to one's personal security and you give your power to someone who's in power to protect you. And we've got to be careful not to allow that to happen. Carl Snowden, thanks for your time and thanks for your work. Thank you very much. That was civil rights activist Carl Snowden for On the Ground. I'm Pete Tucker. Everybody knows that they're guilty. Everybody knows that they've lied. Everybody knows that they're guilty. Resting on their conscience, eating their inside. It's freedom. Said it's freedom time now. It's freedom. Said it's freedom time now. Time to get free. Or give yourselves up now. It's freedom. Said it's freedom time. Yo, there's a war in the mind over territory for the dominion. Who will dominate the opinions, schisms, and isms, keeping us in forms of religion, conforming our vision to the world church's decision, trapped in a section, submitted to committee election, moral infection, epidemic lies and deception, insurrection of the highest possible order, distort, and I take recorders from hearing like underwater. Author Chris Hedges recently spoke at the Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., in support of his latest book, America the Farewell Tour. Thank you. Every book that I've written has a kind of template and, for instance, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, which I did with the great cartoonist Joe Sacco, one of the finest journalists in America. And if you have not read Footnotes in Gaza, uh, which he spent six years on, it's a masterpiece on the Israel-Palestine conflict. That book was really modeled on Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, the great work by James Agee and the photographs by Walker Evans. This book, my kind of model was Emile Durkheim's great study of suicide at the end of the 19th century in France, where Durkheim, who was an amazing sociologist, uh, very much like W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, where he would go out, he he didn't remain trapped in his particular academic enclave, but really went out and listened and interviewed, which is, of course, what made Du Bois such... Uh, remarkable and important presence and sociologist within the United States writing about African-American, African-American communities. And he came to the conclusion, this is where we get the term anomy, that societies that disintegrate, that societies in decay, communities in decay, create diseases of despair. That's not his term, but that's his idea. Pathologies that are expressed, that rise up from failed states. And those would be 
uh, self-loathing, a sense of a lack of self-worth, alienation, all, as Durkheim says, that comes when you no longer have faith or belief in the established order, the established ideology, and established institutions. Those kinds of pathologies are expressed in very self-destructive activities. Gambling, hate crimes, sexual sadism, which is what pornography is, and although I went to the extreme. In my book, Empire of Illusion, I had written about the porn industry, uh, but for this book, I went to kink.com. Hopefully none of you know what it is. <laughs> I didn't know what it is. Derek Jensen had to tell me what it was. So they bought the ar- old National Guard armory in uh, San Francisco and run the largest BDSM operation in the world, which is live streamed. Um, look, tor- it is torture. It is clearly, I mean, women are waterboarded and stuff. Um, and then people will, uh, pe- people can stream in and say what they want done to the women. I mean, just appalling. But anyway, I went to these classes, which were held in the basement of the armory for doms, dominate, do- dom, dom, what do they call them? People who are dominant, people who like, what do they call no, they're not dominatrix. They're, they're dweeby guys who dress in black. Um, and me, sitting in the basement. I was not dressed in black. And I actually wrote the gambling chapter out of the Trump Taj Mahal before I even knew Trump was even going to announce, which was inappropriate decay. I mean, there was mice all over the place. And the lights were burned out and people were shooting up in the elevators. And uh, most of the Taj Mahal was mothballed. It's a nice picture of what's going to happen to the rest of the country if he remains in power. And then I was with these white hate groups, Knights of the Alt-Right, Proud Boys, which, of course, hate groups are a product of a disease society, the three percenters. I was actually at one point at night around a bonfire with these guys in upstate New York, and I, of course, living in mortal fear that someone there would Google me. And at about, I was with my research assistant, who was terrified, quite justifiably so. And at one point, across the bonfire in the dusk, we saw two or three of these guys pointing at me. That's when, like, we we got out, like, as fast as we – she actually, when we got to the car, she was so frightened, she, she like, crawled down to the floor. Um, and, and their counterpart on the left, um, and I've been very critical, as some of you may know, of the Black Bloc and Antifa for much the same reason. I was in these deindustrialized pockets, uh, Anderson, Indiana. And one of the things I like about as a writer, I, I, lo- I enjoy reporting. I like it because when I go out, it often shatters my own assumptions about what is happening. And it keeps me intellectually honest. So sometimes, you know, I can go into a subject and think that I have a great body of knowledge. I wrote a book on the Christian right which has become, unfortunately, I think, uh, fairly relevant to our particular political situation. It's called American Fascists, the Christian Right, and the War on America. I was trying to reach out to them. and um, <laughs> But I come out of the liberal church. My father was a Presbyterian minister, of course, as you heard. Uh, I'm a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. But I didn't really know much about the Christian right. And I went in there with all sorts of assumptions and I would say even stereotypes about the kinds of people who embrace this form of fundamentalism, which I think is heretical. It's Christian heresy. But I couldn't 
listen to these stories of dislocation and pain, sexual, domestic abuse, struggles with addictions, evictions, bankruptcies, without having it break my heart. And I rewrote the whole book. The first chapter is called Despair. And it drove home to me what despair does. And one of the great studies of the rise of fascism by Fritz Stern is called The Politics of Cultural Despair. Hannah Arendt in The Origins of Totalitarianism holds up despair. Uh, again, I think going back to Durkheim, that sense of worthlessness, that sense, and it, and it propels people into a kind of magical thinking. Uh, I also in the book was with preppers and survivalists in Utah um, who have a little food in their bunker and a lot of ammunition. But I think that magical thinking, what anthropologists call it crisis cults, is a natural response to people who are just so overwhelmed by reality that they can't cope. And when I was in Anderson, so Anderson, Indiana used to have most of the big GM plants. And then uh, Clinton gave the gift of NAFTA to the American working class, and GM hightailed it down to Monterey, Mexico, where they pay workers without any benefits or job security $3 an hour. Uh, so uh, your union salary of 25 and if you were a senior level overtime, you know, you could be making $50 an hour. You had benefits. Uh, you had a pension plan. You were medically covered. You were in the UAW at job security. It's all vanished. And Anderson went into the kind of tailspin that many deindustrialized pockets of the United States went into with all of the attendant problems. So what was fascinating about Anderson is that most of these old UAW workers voted for Bernie Sanders. But when the general election came around, they voted for Trump because they weren't going to vote for Clinton after NAFTA. They were acutely aware and perhaps their anger was even greater at the Democratic Party than the Republican Party because it was the Democratic Party that had betrayed them, that had pretended to fight for their interests and their concerns that continued to use the feel-your-pain language of traditional liberalism, but had thrust a knife in their back. And that betrayal is very dangerous. When James Baldwin writes about, in one of his essays, he writes about why uh, he thinks African-American middle-aged men don't have a midlife crisis the way white middle-aged men do. He said, because African-American men are not prone to believe in the American dream, given the forms of oppression that mutate and are protean and exist throughout our, have exist and, and have always existed throughout American history. And I think that there's a certain wisdom in that, um, that, that these, uh, the, of course, the highest, and I write about suicide, the highest percentage of People who commit suicide in this country, which is an epidemic, are middle-aged white men. People who realized that, in fact, the society, there is no place for them. Quote-unquote American dream was a lie. And so what's happened, and it's been a process over a few decades, is that we have undergone what uh, John Ralston Saul calls a coup d'etat in slow motion. A corporate coup d'etat in slow motion. Sheldon Wolin, if you don't know Sheldon Wolin, please read him. We just lost him a couple years ago. I did a three-hour interview with him right before he died on YouTube, um, which was very humbling. I had reread all his books. I had pages of notes. Um, there wasn't – you can watch it. It's, it's remarkable intellectual pyro 
techniques. There was just nothing that I couldn't throw at that guy. Um, it was really quite spectacular. We had not been interviewed in over a decade. was the last interview he gave. Uh, but his book, uh, Democracy Incorporated, and then his masterpiece, Politics and Vision, are kind of seminal works. And Politics and Vision is often considered by political scientists as one of the great uh, political books on political philosophy produced in America in the 20th century, and I think that's not hyperbolic. Wolin calls the system inverted totalitarianism in that he means that, uh, like the late Roman Republic, you still have the facade. You have the, uh, the iconography, the language, the institutions of an open society, of a democratic state, but internally corporations have seized all of the levers of power to render the citizen impotent. And of course what that does, anytime a cabal seizes power, whether it's monarchical, communist, fascist, corporate, is and redirects all of the systems of government and institutions towards their own empowerment and enrichment, then uh, you, you, you get a form of political paralysis. The political system seizes up. It no longer responds to the rights and legitimate grievances of the citizenry and, in fact, extracts more and more and more out of a population that is already under deep distress. And, of course, that is what has happened, and that's one of the reasons why it's important to get out to places like Indiana or I write out of Scranton, Pennsylvania, where the city went bankrupt or almost went bankrupt and they had to sell off all of their utilities, their sewer system. This is not uncommon throughout deindustrialized centers in the United States. And of course, corporations buy it up and then jack up the prices. And these are, I think the, it's in the book, but I can't remember the average per capita income per family is like $40,000 a year or something in Scranton. Not much. And so you're extracting more and more and more from a population that has less and less and less. And that is the process. I mean, Trump has, of course, turbocharged the kleptocracy, but it was there before he came in. And so what we're facing and what we're producing and what's ahead of us is the inevitable collapse of the American empire, all of the warning signs that have brought down other empires throughout history are f flashing red within the American empire. And I'll just tick a few of those off. One is the political paralysis, the inability of the system to address the injustices the economic deprivation, the loss of rights of the population, and in fact, to make it worse. The other, of course, is something that even Bernie Sanders doesn't like to talk about, and that is the bloated militarism and imperialism um, that is hollowing the country out from the inside. So you have now 17 years of warfare in the Middle East. I, I, there's a term, uh, I don't know if people have read, Alfred McCoy wrote a good book, uh, I think it's called This American Century. He's a great historian. But he, he talks about what he calls micro-militarism. It's a term that historians use. And what it is is that uh, late empires inevitably overreach. They carry out acts of military folly in an effort to recapture a lost power. For instance, the in the Athenian Empire, they invade Sicily. Their entire fleet is sunk. Thousands of soldiers 
are killed and the empire unravels, there are revolts throughout the empire. Or you look at the slow decline of the British Empire, which really began at the end of World War I, but culminated in 1956 when Nasser nationalizes the Suez Canal and the British invade, attempt to invade – and and going back to Sacco's book, the Israelis take over Gaza for 100 days and carry out wholesale massacres, which is what his book is about, Footnotes in Gaza. And Eisenhower and, uh, w- will not support them, largely because he won't give them credit to carry out this act of military adventurism, and they retreat in humiliation. And then what happens is the pound sterling uh, is dropped as the world's reserve currency. And that, of course, is the death blow of the American empire, which is going to happen one day. Once the dollar is no longer the reserve currency, the, the economy seizes up. Uh, imports become phenomenally expensive. We can't live off of the sale of treasury bonds and because nobody wants them. Um, and you can look at what happened to the British economy in the 50s if you want to know what's coming. And so y- you have a situation where you're squeezing your population Harder and harder and harder uh, for less and less and less. Uh, And this is a characteristic with Joseph Tainer writes about it in his great study, The Collapse of Complex Societies, where he looks at, I think it's 24 different civilizations, but he talks about that final moment when the elites retreat to the equivalent of the Forbidden City or Versailles, or in our country, it's what a writer in The New Yorker called Richistan, which means you fly on private jets and you never have any contact at all with anybody who doesn't make a few million dollars a year. And so they have no connection with the reality, and they squeeze, in this case, of course, it's through debt peonage. You know, they've borrowed all these banks, all Goldman Sachs, which is a criminal organization. Goldman Sachs, all of these corporations were able to borrow from the Fed trillions of dollars. I mean, there's various numbers, four or seven, and at virtually 0% interest. But it does have to be paid back. And so how's it paid back? It's extracted from us. That's $1.4 trillion in student debt. That is, you're late on your credit card, it's 28%. That is, you know, even if you have health insurance, as anyone who has it can tell you, the costs keep rising astronomically in terms of copay, what they don't cover, what the the pharmaceutical industry, which can jack up our, you know, the the myelin, but that's just one of many examples in the in the EpiPen. So you're extracting more and more from a population and how do you deal with this kind of calcification or failed democracy? And that is that at the same time, you strip citizens of their rights. You reinterpret constitutional rights. You overturn them by judicial fiat. So, uh, for, for instance, with Citizens United, which allows the Koch brothers to control with dark money or Sheldon Adelson, these figures – our elections, it becomes the right to petition the government or a form of free speech. This is how Citizens United is justified. Edward Snowden exposes the fact that we are the most surveilled, watched, monitored, eavesdropped population in human history. And I covered the Stasi state in East Germany. And of course, nothing is done to restore the constitutional right of privacy. And if you wonder why it's so dangerous that they have everything on every one of us, including medical records, you go back to Hannah Arendt's great book, Origins of Totalitarianism, 
and she writes about how despotic governments take information or have files, information on every citizen, so that at the moment that they seek to criminalize that person or a group, they can twist whatever information they have to justify it as a crime. We also have, courtesy of Barack Obama's signing of the 2011 National Defense Authorization Act, Section 1021, which overturns the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, which had before prohibited the military from acting as a domestic police force. And as some of you may know, I sued Obama in federal court and to the chagrin of the national security state won. And the very courageous judge, Catherine Forrest, ruled in our favor and issued a temporary injunction. And uh, I, within hours of that injunction, lawyers from the NSA and had flown up uh, and demanded in the name of national security that she reinstate this act. Now, this act allows the military to seize U.S. citizens, strip them of due process, and hold them indefinitely in military facilities. And in her opinion, which is worth reading, uh, she said this opens the path for the government to criminalize an entire group of people. And she cites the 110,000 Japanese Americans who were interned in World War II. You militarize police forces um, and you create legal and physical mechanisms among demoni the demonized segments of your population so that at a moment that the country becomes restive with a flick of a switch, you can impose martial law or tyranny. So in marginal communities, you have already reigns of terror. 94% of the people in our prison system never get a jury trial. They're forced to plea out. And I have taught in prison for 10 years, and my the students I have with the longest sentences invariably went to trial did not commit the crime for which they are charged, went to trial, though many people who are forced to plead guilty didn't commit the crime, and nobody deserves, almost no one in the system deserves the length of sentences or the conditions they're held under. And they get the longest sentences because it has is a message sent to everyone else, which is basically don't try this. I mean, they won't peel off the the charges and that's how a plea works they stack all sorts of charges even they know you didn't do it i mean they love to put kidnapping on no matter what you did because it's 25 years so and and it will go back to aaron so aaron writes about she herself uh, is expelled from germany stripped of her german citizenship finds herself in france and she writes about the plight of the stateless and she said once you create a mechanism within your society whereby for a segment of that society, rights become privileges. And we see it with what's happening to undocumented people around us. Then you have the infrastructure and the legal tools so that those privileges can be taken away from everyone. And let's be very clear just to conclude that our corporate masters will stop at nothing if they feel that their profits are being impeded. And the great example of that, and I was out there, is Standing Rock. So here you had a nonviolent protest by water protectors to safeguard their own, not only their water, but their land. And the response of the state, and this was under Obama, was incredibly violent. So over 700 arrests. 
the use of attack dogs. We're all talking about nonviolent protesters. Sub-freezing temperatures, you're using water cannons laced with pepper spray uh, against people. Constant infiltration. And this is something that I keep telling the kids who I loved in Zuccotti, they weren't quite aware of. The extent to which the state is able to monitor and infiltrate, although there were moments in Zuccotti when it was out of a Doonesbury cartoon because some guy who clearly lifted weights and was in his 30s would show up in a baseball cap and uh, and tell everyone he was at Reed College, but he forgot his ID card. Um, and the question was always the same after a few, a little chit-chat. He goes, so uh, who are the leaders? <laughs> That was always, and um, I mean, the great, the power of uh, Occupy was that everything was transparent. We're not going to win this game unless we're transparent. And it gets the whole issue if somebody wants to ask about it, about nonviolence, which is the only way we're going to win this game. And so I remember one of these cops went to the head of the medical, there was a medical tent in there and said to the woman running the medical tent, so uh, eventually came out, so who are the leaders? And she goes, uh, I am. He goes, oh, really? He goes, well, what's your title? She goes, God. <laughs> but what's not funny is that because these activists were using electronic media, but uh, you know, digital communication, they knew who was important. And in, after the under Obama coordinated national effort, they shut down Occupy, which for me was one of the great tragedies of our time because if the state had responded rationally to the very moderate demands of the Occupy movement, forgiving student debt, universal health care, a jobs program, especially targeted at people under the age of 25, it would have actually gone a long way to ameliorating the pressure which has now only gotten worse. But unfortunately, the state did not respond rationally. And I know I'm a little over, but just let me close by talking about Trump. Trump is the symptom. He's not the disease. And I watched this same kind of political deformity and deterioration in Yugoslavia. And you can go back and look at Weimar, Eric Vogelin writes about it in Hitler and the Germans, where he talks about how, you know, this idea that Hitler mesmerized or hypnotized is ridiculous. What it tapped into was a kind of incohate rage and frustration and sense of betrayal, because after the 1929 crash, the socialist government, the Social Democrats under Ebert in Weimar, imposed the same kinds of programs of austerity that were pushed on him by the bank. So they even suspended, if you can believe it, unemployment insurance. People couldn't even get unemployment insurance. And the Nazis were in 28 were polling in the single digits after the crash, of course, and the policy of austerity. And then it gets into the whole, we can go back to Rosen Luxemburg and the Fry Corps and all that. But people embraced these figures who were Everybody knew they were buffoonish in the same way that everyone knows Trump is buffoonish, as the same way that everybody knew Radovan Karadovich or Slobodan Milosevic or Franjo Tuzman were buffoonish because of the anger at the system. And my fear as I watch the Democratic Party and the mainstream commercial media is that they don't get it. 
They continue to play this reality show game. Did Russia try and interfere? Well, yeah, probably. But Trump is not a product of of Russian interference. Trump is a product of grotesque social inequality. And of course, the Democratic Party doesn't want to address that issue because they are an appendage of corporate power. Yes, they are on the spectrum of corporate power that doesn't want to be identified as a racist or xenophobe or a homophobe, but they do nothing to halt the cannibalization of corporations, nor, and, and of course, that a part of that is the wars that we are waging. Um, it makes no sense to remain. The Taliban now controls more territory in Afghanistan they di- than they did when we went in. Um, so why are we still there? Well, I mean, look at the stock prices of Raytheon, Halliburton. You know, a, a cruise missile costs, what, $1.1 million? Let's drop 50 of them on Libya. Um, it's it's good for money. It's good for profit for the war industry. But it's not good for anyone over there, and it's certainly not good for us. And author Chris Hedges will have the last word on today's show. He was speaking at the Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., in support of his latest book, America, the Farewell Tour. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. The music we played this hour included Lauren Hill, War in the Mind, comment with Trouble on the Water, the late Fred Ho and the Green Monster Band with Blues to the Freedom Fighters and Robert Glasper and Illa J. They Can't Hold Me Down. You can write us at our website. We'd love to hear from you. If you are a listener and are on Facebook, please like our Facebook page, On the Ground Show. Our Facebook page has a picket sign with green letters that say On the Ground. We are also on Twitter and are on iTunes under the title WPFW On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be at the Busy Bee Gift and Art Show at 1510 9th Street in Northwest D.C. Today, November 23rd and November 24th. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.